Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a neurosurgeon tells about a new way to provide radiation therapy using a tool the size of a postage stamp. We place the radiation sources inside the brain at the site of surgery. So uh, the radiation happens right the moment after surgery. And two urologists explain ways to treat men with enlarged prostates, including one method using a laser. That's like peeling the orange from the inside out. So when you're done, all that's left is the peel and all of the fruit has been removed. We'll also hear about a non-surgical technique called the Eurolift. All that plus a visit from the Healing Muse after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a pair of urologists discuss treatment options for men with enlarged prostates, including surgery and laser treatments. Then we'll hear about a new non-surgical technique for treating an enlarged prostate. But first, Gamatile is a new way to provide radiation therapy to patients having a brain tumor removed. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Neurosurgeons have a new way to target radiation therapy in patients with brain tumors. And here to talk about this new tool is Dr. Harish Babu. He's co-director of the Brain Tumor Program at Upstate and director of Minimally Invasive Neurosurgery. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Babu. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on HealthLink. So tell us about this new tool called GammaTile. So GammaTile is a sort of a surgically targeted radiation therapy technology uh, that is that has been recently approved by the FDA to be used uh, for brain tumor patients. Um, usually brain tumors are treated with a combination of surgery and radiation. And uh, this, uh, you, and usually the radiation uh, is an external being. You sit in, in a radiation machine and the, and the radiation comes from the outside. Uh, this is the other way around. Here, we place the radiation sources inside the brain at the site of surgery. So uh, the radiation happens right the moment after surgery. Now, these are stamp-sized bioabsorbable collagen tiles that are embedded with small radiation sources, which uh, and they are designed to be implanted by a neurosurgeon at the end of a tumor section. Now these uh, stamp-sized radiation sources are placed at the edge of the resection area where the need for the radiation is the most because we think that's where most of the, uh, the, the cancer cells are and where the boundary between the cancer and the normal brain is. Now as soon as- So it goes into the, let me just interrupt you. So it goes into the space that's left after you take the tumor Correct. out. Correct. And you said it's a stamp size tiled. Does one tile, is that all that you need? The number of tiles that we need may differ depending upon each patient's uh, tumor, the surgery, and the resection cavity or the resection bed that is left after removal of the tumor. So this is a d decided on an individual basis uh, for an individual patient. There is no standard number here. You described it as a bioresorbable collagen tile. Does that mean it dissolves into the tissue or what happens to the, it once you leave it there? The, the collagen uh, structure, uh, which holds these uh, radiation sources uh, are implanted, but eventually these collagen sources are absorbed by the brain tissue, usually within uh, three, four months after implant. Now the tiles hold their shape and, and the position while the brain, uh, within the brain, while the radiation is being delivered. Um, but after about three, four months, these, uh, these collagen tiles are dissolved and, and only this loose sort of small uh, seeds of this radiation are left. And, and the radiation has also decreased. And, and that is, you know, it, it, those radiation seeds stay there, but the larger tile just dissolves. 
When I looked uh, for some pictures online, it, these little tiles had uh, sort of bumps on one side of them, like a almost like a Lego tile. Um, wh why are they designed with with bumps on one side? Well, it is uh, to some extent it is to let the surgeons know uh, which side to place uh, should go to the brain side and which side should be to the to to the sort of the cavity side. Uh, the bumpy side of the tile is where, which goes towards the brain side, um, and it is it is designed in such a way that the bumpy side would give the correct dose of radiation, the amount of radiation. Uh, so that that helps us uh, sort of uh, place those tiles in the during surgery appropriately. I've heard of brachytherapy, where radiation sources are placed in the tumor resection cavity during surgery. How is this different? It, uh, brachytherapies uh, for have been tried for for a long time. In fact, I think the first ones were tried back in 1930s or 1940s. Um, and several different sources of radiation have you know have evolved over a period of time. Um, and uh, about 20 years ago, 30 years ago, what the what was being tried was iodine 125. Now. Now, in the past 20 years or so, uh, you know, radiation scientists, uh, physicists have, have seen that cesium-131 is, is a much better source uh, for radiation. It gives about the same radiation. It is effective, but it has an, one advantage uh, that is it is a shorter half-life. Uh, you get the same amount of radiation in a shorter time period and in a shorter distance. From a medicine point of view, that translates to uh, you 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 get treated for a shorter period of time. That is improved ease of use. You know it increases efficacy, and as well as has a superior safety profile. So in some sense, this is similar to the brachytherapy, but a, a lot more evolved and and technologically better. How does treatment using gamma tile compare with standard radiation treatment? So. Uh, these uh, these gamma tiles, uh, these radiation sources, you know, spit out radiation, and and that which and that affects the the cancer cells. Now, when you place these gamma tiles, uh, about uh, you know fifty percent uh, of the therapeutic doses uh, are delivered within the first ten days after surgery. Now, in in a normal that in a normal what we call as an external beam radiation, you every day you would have to go to the you know the physician's office, uh, you know get the radiation, and that happens over a period of day days and weeks. Here, fifty percent of the dose is uh, is delivered within the first ten days, and in fact, about ninety five percent of the dose is delivered within the six weeks. And you don't have to go to any physician's office; you're just up and about doing daily things. It, the radiation is happening, uh, you know, inside your brain. And you're not going to any physician's office. What are the uh, side effects like compared gamma tile with the external beam radiation? So if I, if we start off with the external beam radiation, uh, the the side effects are headaches. Uh, you have hair loss, you know, nausea, vomiting, uh, tiredness, and and the most and you also notice uh, skin and scalp discoloration, uh, and also you know th there is also uh, memory and cognitive problems. Now, th that doesn't mean that everybody gets this. Uh, some, you know, it's a combination of things that people get during external beam radiation. Now, while in gamma tile, uh, you know, there is very little side effect. Uh, one side, of, they, not much side effect you get. And sometimes the side effects are related to the radiation necrosis that happens very rarely, but generally it is much well tolerated than the, the conventional external beam radiation uh, that is designed for classical uh, brain brain tumors. Do we know yet whether gamma tile will be more effective at preventing a tumor from growing back than traditional radiation? We we do not know that yet. We we don't have enough studies uh, to suggest uh, whether uh, gamma tile is better than the standard radiation therapy. Uh, studies are ongoing. Uh, we don't have enough numbers to state that yet. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with neurosurgeon Dr. Harish Babu about a new tool for brain tumors called Gamma Tile. 
So I want to ask you about what patients may be candidates for the gamma tile. Is this adults, children? Currently, it is FDA approved for adults uh, for recurrent um, brain tumors, such as glioblastomas, uh, metastatic disease, and meningiomas. And it is also, uh, since uh, the beginning of 2020, also been approved for for a primary brain tumors, that is, uh, you know, uh, first time diagnosed uh, brain tumors as well, but only for adults. Does it matter the size of the tumor or where it's located in the brain as to whether they would be a good candidate for this? Um, so as far as a size or the location, it is not a concern. Uh, any location or any size uh, patients or tumors uh, can can get gamma tiles. Um, the only the only thing is that they they should be ready for surgery. Gamma tiles are placed after surgery, so you need to uh, you know be a surgical candidate for those tumors. And once at the end of surgery is when we place these gamma tiles. But to answer your question, size and uh, and and location of the tumor are not a concern. Is there anything that would disqualify a person from having gamma tile? I saw something about um, hypersensitivity to bovine-derived materials. Yeah, um, because these collagen fibers are derived derived from bovine material, uh, anybody who has previously had uh, sensitivity or hypersensitivity to bovine-derived material, they would be they would not be candidates for uh, for gamma tile. And also, if there are there if there are any patients who have rarely shown uh, to have increased uh, necrosis from radiation, uh, they may also, you know, we may also need to counsel them appropriately. Uh, they may be sensitive to radiation as well. Now, if someone is going to need to have chemotherapy after the, you know, surgery and the gamma tile, can they do that with the gamma tiles in place? Certainly, they can. Um, um, gamma tile does not uh, uh, exclude them. Uh, exclude any patients from getting chemotherapy. Uh, their chemotherapy can continue um, just about the same way as they would be conventionally. Now, will someone who has gamma tile, are they going to be radioactive for a period of time? And can they be around their loved ones in the days after this? So get, um, once we place the gamma tiles, uh, as, as I just alluded earlier, uh, you know, about 50% of the radiation um, does happen. Uh, it happens in the first 10 days, and about 95% of the radiation is in the first six weeks. So during this this time, theoretically, uh, there is radioactivity. Uh, but we know that the cesium source, uh, the drop-off of the radiation is very quick, which means the the distance uh, where you feel the radiation is, is very short, within millimeters. So theoretically, yes, uh, one, sh one should be aware of this, and their loved ones should be uh, should be counseled uh, that there is radiation, uh, you know, uh, within the within the brain of the patient. Um, but after about six weeks, uh, as we said, about ninety five percent of the radiation is gone. So, uh, so the first six weeks, one should be uh, aware of this and be careful. Well, I'd like to have you walk us through what a patient who's going to have this procedure can expect. So how do you tell someone to prepare in the days ahead of surgery? What do they need to do to get ready? So um, placing a gamma tile or the gamma tile procedure per se uh, adds about two or three minutes uh, in addition to the routine surgery they might otherwise be uh, signing up for. Um, and for any neurosurgical procedure, you know, we, we, we sit down with the patient, we talk to them, we counsel them. Um, what what are the goals of the surgery? What are we what are we trying here? Uh, is tumor resection and and what are the risks for surgery? And and there are the, the risks for surgeries are long, but but effective. You know, most importantly, uh, sort of having stroke or coma or serious uh, you know neurological deficit. Uh, we talk to them depending upon the location and 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 the size of the tumor. And and once we have had a discussion, uh, the patient can choose to go with surgery or go, you know, or decide against surgery. And at that time, we, you know, we would, we would again uh, sort of discuss what exactly the surgery uh, looks like, you know, where the incision would be, uh, what times and how, how long will they be in the, in the hospital. Typically after a procedure like this, they would be a night or two nights in the hospital. And, and we would say that about the first five to six weeks, uh, they would, you know, 
there would be little, they would not have the normal activity. They, uh, because just because they would be lethargic, they would be a little weak just from getting the surgery. After that, they can go about doing their normal day-to-day -day activities. So it sounds like inserting the gamma tile only adds, you said two or three minutes at the end of the procedure and having these installed doesn't seem like it changes the course of recovery for most people. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. From a, from a surgeon standpoint, it's about two to three minutes extra for the surgery. Um, and, and from a patient's perspective, it shouldn't change um, anything more than the normal surgery as well. But obviously, this sometimes may depend upon patient to patient, but most patients have done very well uh, with, with gamma tile placement. Will the remnants of the gamma tile show up on brain scans in, in the future that they have? Yeah. So, the, so as we said, the, the bioabsorbable collagen tiles are absorbed in, in you know, three to four months, so they don't show up. But the seeds, uh, these are sort of two to three millimeter size uh, titanium beads. Uh, they will show up on the scan um, even after the radiation sources have depleted and even after the uh, collagen has been absorbed. But so, yes, those radiation seeds uh, will show up on the MRI. Now, for listeners who want to learn more about Gamma Tile, um, how can they find out or get connected with you if this is something that interests them? So the patients or, or referring physicians uh, who may be interested in, in, in gamma tile, they certainly can, can you know, uh, sort of seek a referral at the Department of Neurosurgery. Uh, they can either, um, you know, send us a referral. Our office would be happy to contact them and, and do the needful and, and channel them uh, to the appropriate, you know, sort of surgical field. I'll let listeners know that phone number for the neurosurgery department, 315-464-4470. Thank you to Dr. Harish Babu. He's co-director of the Brain Tumor Program at Upstate and director of Minimally Invasive Neurosurgery. And we've been talking about the new gamma tile. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, choosing how to treat an enlarged prostate. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. More than half of men in their 60s and up to 90% of men in their 70s and 80s have an enlarged prostate. Today on HealthLink on Air, we'll get an overview of this condition and how it may be treated from two upstate urologists. Dr. Hanan Goldberg and Dr. Scott Weiner are both assistant professors of urology and both take care of patients with enlarged prostates. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, both of you. Thanks so much for having us today. Thank you so much. Well, let's start with some basics, Dr. Weiner. Um, tell us about the prostate gland. Sure. So the prostate gland is found only in men. It's located just below the bladder and connects the bladder to the urethra where urine comes out. The function of the gland is essentially to produce some of the sugars that feed the sperm used in uh, sexual reproduction. Uh, it tends to be very small when a patient is born, uh, maybe the size of a pea, and uh, typically grows to about the size of a walnut by the time the patient reaches puberty. Um, unfortunately, it continues to grow in most men and eventually can cause symptoms, although it's not really clear uh, from research that available, uh, whether it's the size or the shape of the prostate or some combination of both. But generally speaking, men will tend to have more symptoms the larger the prostate gets, although this isn't universal. Um, while some men may have a very small prostate and have significant symptoms, and the treatments vary depending on exactly what's found during the evaluation. Dr. Goldberg, um, how does a man know that his prostate has gotten big enough to cause problems? Yes, so uh, what Dr. Weiner said before is absolutely correct. This, uh, the prostate grows with age, uh, and, and as it enlarges in some men, it does cause significant symptoms, and the symptoms are mainly, uh, as, as can be guessed, urinary symptoms. Uh, we usually divide this into both uh, to storage and, and voiding symptoms. Uh, storage is more uh, symptoms of, of frequency, of, uh, of uh, hesitancy, 
and avoiding symptoms of more of a slower stream, dribbling, uh, trouble emptying the bladder, feeling of, of not being empty enough. Uh, and, and BPH, what it's called, which is basically benign prostatic hyperplasia, uh, which is enlargement of the prostate causing these symptoms, is quite common. It's in the top 10 diseases uh, of men above the age of 50. Um, and it's uh, evident up to 90% of men above the age of 80. So it's a very common issue. Uh, we see this very often, and, and most men will have some sort of, um, uh, some extent of symptoms of these, uh, of this uh, uh, issue. Dr. Weiner, um, how would a man know if frequent urination was because of an enlarged prostate or if it was a bladder issue or something else? Essentially, the only way to know is to see your doctor and have a physical examination. It's very important to make sure that the bladder is emptying if you're having symptoms like that, uh, because we really uh, do start to see problems if uh, a patient's retaining urine. But there's a lot of other causes that could be um, resulting in urinary frequency or irritation, including bladder cancer and other very concerning conditions. Um, so I definitely recommend an evaluation for anybody with these symptoms. Now, what if someone ignores the symptoms of an enlarged prostate? What if it's left untreated? Um, what happens? Well, for the vast majority of men, uh, it's going to impact their quality of life and nothing more. But for a very small subset of men, there are serious conditions that can develop, including infections, uh, including sepsis. And men can have deterioration in kidney function due to the pressure that builds up in the bladder. They can develop stones. And ultimately, there can be a loss of bladder function. So it's very important to talk about these issues with your doctor uh, to make sure that there's nothing serious going on. Do you have any estimate of how many men suffer with symptoms like this just because they're embarrassed to admit something's wrong or maybe they're afraid? Um, in other words, what percent of men with BPH do you think are not getting care? We know that 90% of men will ultimately develop in a large prostate and perhaps 30% of men will have symptoms. Uh, we, we're definitely not seeing 30% of men in our clinics, so I wouldn't be surprised if there's a tremendous number of men who are just uh, afraid to talk about these issues as they are very intimate. And um, it, we sometimes do see folks come in with those sort of end stage problems I just touched upon, and, and I'd really like to try to prevent that. Dr. Goldberg, can you walk us through the tests that you would do to diagnose BPH if, if a man came in with symptoms? Um, how would you go about assessing? Yeah, so uh, like like anything else in medicine, the first thing is, of course, the medical history, physical examination. We need to really understand what kind of urinary symptoms uh, this man is having. It's also important to remember that urinary symptoms are also uh, can can be manifested by many other diseases, systemic diseases such as diabetes, such as congestive heart failure, and these are always things that we need to remember. Um, on top of of the medical history and physical examination, there are questionnaires that we use uh, to better uh, define the urinary symptoms, as I mentioned before, differentiate between voiding and storage symptoms, and sometimes they have both. Um, we also do um, um, the uh, uh, PSA blood test, which is the prostatic-specific antigen. Uh, and that's an important point because, you know, there's a lot of confusion um, about um, the difference between benign prostatic hyperplasia, which is a, which a benign disease, and that is the topic that we are discussing now, and, and prostate cancer. These are two separate entities. And the PSA, which is a, is a protein produced by uh, normal as well as malignant cells of the prostate, uh, can be uh, uh, increased, can be uh, uh, increased at, at both the benign P, uh, prostatic hyperplasia and prostate cancer. So uh, that's one of the tests we do. Additionally, we do some urine tests as well. We can measure the flow, the stream of the urine, and we can uh, even measure the uh, residual that is left using an ultrasound machine, uh, see how much urine is left after the person, after the man uh, voids. So these are basically the, the first tests. There are, of course, more additional tests that can be done later on according to the results that we find in the initial encounter. Does BPH uh, cause an increased risk to the man for prostate cancer? So there's no definitive link that has been found between uh, prostate cancer and BPH. Uh, there's been many studies uh, uh, looking at this, but as I said before, the PSA, which can rise both from BPH 
and from prostate cancer sometimes can cause some confusion. So we, it's very important that when a PSA is high that we first, uh, as urologists, make sure that this person does not have prostate cancer before we treat his BPH, because of course BPH um, is not a malignant disease and prostate cancer is. And so our first priority is to rule out prostate cancer. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, here with Dr. Scott Weiner and Dr. Hanan Goldberg. They're urologists at Upstate, and we're talking about a condition that affects a lot of men as they age an enlarged prostate. Dr. Weiner, are most men prescribed medication to treat this? Sure. So there's a few medications that are available for BPH. Um, they came about uh, in the 80s, and before that, the mainstay of treatment was surgery. Uh, but since then, uh, most patients have preferred to start with medical therapy, although it's not wrong to request surgery up front if a man is not interested in taking medications. So the typical medications that are prescribed for BPH include something called an alpha blocker, of which there are many types. The most commonly prescribed is tamsulosin. These are taken typically once daily, and they relax the smooth muscles of the prostate. So being a gland, the prostate has a lot of smooth, smooth muscle within it. These muscles serve to help uh, propel the uh, seminal fluid out of the prostate gland. Uh, unfortunately, as the prostate grows and becomes enlarged, these muscle fibers become disorganized. So they become tight and they press against the capsule of the prostate as the adenoma or enlarged prostate grows. So administering these medications tends to relax those smooth muscles and open up space inside the prostate gland. The other option is a medicine called a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. There are two available options on the market, finasteride and dutasteride. Both of these medications are equivalent, and essentially what they do is they block the conversion of testosterone to its more active form, dihydrotestosterone. This is a molecule that's active only in two places, in your prostate and in your scalp. What does it do? It causes your prostate to grow and your hair to fall out. So by blocking it, we can affect both of those conditions. Interesting. Uh, Dr. Goldberg, can you tell us about some of the traditional surgery options? Yes. So there, for BPH, there's really a plethora of uh, surgical treatment options. Uh, I think the, the gold standard, the, the classical procedure, which is also uh, the one that's been around the longest time, I think the first time it was performed was, was more than a century ago, in 19, um, beginning of the uh, 1909, I think, by um, one of the famous urologists. And basically, this is called a TERP. This is a transurethral uh, resection of the uh, prostate. This is an endoscopic procedure. There's no incisions. Uh, we don't open anything up. Uh, we go in through uh, the penis uh, and we reach the prostate area and we remove part of the prostate endoscopically. Uh, the surgeon reaches the prostate by using an instrument um, uh, that is called a resectoscope. It's about 12 inches long. Uh, in about uh, 0 0.5 inches in diameter. We do this under anesthesia, so the person does not feel anything uh, or remember anything. Uh, it also contains a, a camera, a lighted camera, and some valves to, con to control irrigation fluid that helps us visualize the area much better. And uh, it contains an electrical wire and a loop uh, that basically cuts the tissue and seals the blood vessel to, to prevent bleeding. Uh, this is guided by the surgeon to remove all the tissue blocking the, the urethra and blocking the bladder. Uh, the pieces are at the end of the surgery, usually at the in, are inside the bladder, and at the end, we just irrigate all the pieces out uh, and, and send it to pathology for examination as well. What are the success rates like for this surgery? So uh, this is a very successful procedure. That's why it's called the, the gold standard. Uh, when you when you look at the improvement in both the, the quality of life, the, the maximal stream of urine that is achieved, so uh, there's a mean improvement of over 100% sometimes. Uh, quality of life is improved by 70%. The questionnaires that we use before and after the procedure, uh, there's also an improvement of 70% there. And the stream can improve by about 70%, which is, which is a very uh, significant number. And this, there's a lot of uh, long-term follow-up on this procedure because it has been done for so long. There's, there's studies showing follow-up for, for over 20 years even, uh, showing that the success rate is quite high. There's a, a probable uh, uh, annual um, uh, retreatment rate of about 1% to 2%, I would say, for uh, TERP. 
uh, it depends what what studies you look at, but that's pretty much the uh, the number that most uh, studies quote, and that's because because of of of, 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 um, of many reasons. One of them is the prostate can grow back, and it does grow back at a certain rate. And sometimes, um, you know, if the surgery was not uh, done well enough, and not enough tissue was removed, uh, then uh, the obstruction can recur again. Do men who opt for a surgery like this end up having to take medications, like Dr. Weiner told us about? Or does this eliminate the need to take the medications? Yeah, so in the majority of the cases, the uh, uh, the need for medication does not exist after the surgery. The alpha blockers, the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, as Dr. Weiner had mentioned, uh, they are not needed anymore uh, if the surgery is done in the correct way. Uh, sometimes there is uh, what we call overactive uh, bladder symptoms that can occur after these procedures. Uh, this basically means that the bladder contracts a little bit more than it should, and, and the patient feels um, more frequency and the urge to urinate more frequently. And sometimes we provide medications to help him with that, uh, but these are different medications. Is erectile dysfunction a side effect? Yes. Yeah, so uh, the important uh, sexual side effects of the procedure. So the the one thing is first the retro, what we call the retrograde ejaculation, uh, which is probably the most common long-term complication of this procedure. And, and it's quite common. It can occur in up to 90% of cases. Basically what this means that, is that the sexual function is not uh, limited by any way. The man can still reach an orgasm, but there will, there will be no ejaculate at the end of the uh, sexual encounter. The ejaculate, basically what happens, it actually goes backwards inside the bladder. That's why it's called retrograde. Uh, and, and the man it, and just voids his ejaculates, uh, his ejaculate out. Uh, this is not dangerous in any way. Um, this does not harm the person in any way. The only problem it can pose is that if someone is still interested in, in fertility and bringing children, so this, of course, is, a, is, a, is an issue. But usually in the men that we treat uh, and we that we perform this procedure in, they're you know they're not interested in fertility anymore and they're they're finished with that uh, by the time they come and see us. With erectile dysfunction, as as you asked, I would say it's it's about five to ten percent, uh, temporary or permanent. Um, um, but usually uh, it's a, I would say not more than five to ten percent. We have to take a short break, but HealthLink on Air will be back with more treatment options for enlarged prostate with Dr. Scott Weiner and Dr. Hanan Goldberg. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, speaking with two urologists from Upstate, Dr. Hanan Goldberg and Dr. Scott Weiner. Our topic is enlarged prostate. We already spoke about medications and surgical options. Now we're going to explore some newer procedures. Dr. Weiner, can you go over the laser ablation option? Sure. So one of the things that uh, various technology companies have uh, tried to improve upon is the length of hospital stay and the location in which the procedures are performed. So historically, the TERP procedure is done as an inpatient procedure that uses a hot knife or an electrode to essentially scrape away tissue. So what this does is it requires the patient typically to spend the night in the hospital. And so over the last 20 years or so, a number of laser technologies have been developed to try to eliminate the bleeding that can occur after a TERP procedure. So historically, there's something called photovaporization of the prostate or green light prostatectomy. This uses a very high power laser that essentially destroys the tissue. The idea is that the surgeon will paint the tissue with the laser and remove the tissue in that way. It's very similar to the TERP procedure in the way that the tissue is removed, except that instead of being cut off, it's vaporized. Uh, this procedure does have some advantages in terms of bleeding, but there's no real significant improvement in terms of the urinary flow rate or satisfaction, and the laser energy can spread beyond the prostate, resulting in more irritative symptoms. Uh, for that reason, there's some other options uh, that we also tend to present to patients. Let me be clear on this. This doesn't require an incision either. This is done endoscopically as well? 
Correct. It's done using very similar equipment as the transurethral resection of the prostate or TERP, except instead of an electrode, we're using a laser. I see. Uh, what are the side effects like? Uh, so the side effects are essentially identical to the TURP, uh, with the main difference being the amount of postoperative bleeding uh, and the amount of irritative symptoms. Uh, so a little bit less bleeding is created for a little bit higher chance of um, urgency and frequency after the procedure. So there's laser ablation, which you just described. What is this new whole lab? That's also a laser procedure, right? So the homium laser enucleation of the prostate, or HOLEP, is a procedure that's been developed a little bit more recently, initially gained uh, favor in Europe, and has now been uh, gaining popularity in the United States. So the way I like to describe this procedure to my patients is that we should think of the prostate in terms of an orange. So it has a capsule, and in that capsule is uh, several lobes of adenoma. So we can think of the capsule like the peel of the orange, and we can think of the adenoma like the wedges of fruit within. So the TERP procedure is like taking a spoon and scraping out some of that tissue. No matter how hard you're gonna try to do that, there may still be some rind left over, and that's the, um, the residual tissue that Dr. Goldberg alluded to. The whole that procedure is a little bit different. In this procedure, we're entering the prostate gland through the urethra, just like the other procedures, but we're able to get our telescope using the laser in between those wedges or those lobes of the prostate and develop the space between the adenoma and the capsule. That's like peeling the orange from the inside out. So when you're done, all that's left is the peel and all of the fruit has been removed. The way the tissue is removed is it's pushed into the bladder as a, a single entity. And then we have a special device called a morselator which can remove that tissue. So how does uh, the success rate compare with these laser procedures with the surgery? Sure, so we can break down transurethral procedures of the prostate into a few categories. So there's ablative procedures, which essentially destroy some, but not all of the tissue. And there's enucleative procedures. So HOLAP is one of these enucleative procedures. The others being open or laparoscopic simple prostatectomy. Open prostatectomy is essentially the same operation, except the surgeon uses his finger to peel the fruit, so to speak. So the HOLAP procedure is one of the three enucleative procedures, and those procedures result in higher urinary flow rates and symptom improvement compared to ablative procedures. But uh, historically, the open and laparoscopic surgeries have required longer hospital stays and have higher amounts of bleeding. The HOLAP avoids this by treating the bleeding on the spot with a laser, so it has very low risks of bleeding or transfusion. Most of the patients go home the same day, not all, and uh, many are discharged without a catheter. So there are some advantages. The disadvantages are that retrograde ejaculation is essentially guaranteed because we remove so much tissue. Uh, there's a small risk of incontinence, uh, although that typically resolves within a year. That's usually stress incontinence or dribbling with coughing, lifting, or uh, picking up something heavy. The reason is that we remove so much tissue that the urinary sphincter needs time to strengthen up, just like after an orthopedic operation, you need to do physical therapy. We would recommend the same thing, Kegel exercises after this procedure. Um, the only other substantial disadvantage to the HOLAP is the morselator device does have a very small uh, but finite risk of injury to the bladder as there's little teeth on this device that snag the tissue and uh, could cause a problem, but that's a very rare complication. Well, I am going to talk to both of you more about how you help patients make a decision on which procedure. But Dr. Goldberg, first of all, can you tell us about what you're offering, the Eurolift? How does that work? Yes. So there are many, as I said before, and um, there are many treatment options available. Uh, and one of the uh, treatments offered is the Eurolift, which is uh, as a basically it's a it's a novel, minimally invasive approach, which can be done under local or general anesthesia. Uh, encroaching lateral lobes of the prostate are basically compressed by small uh, permanent suture-based implants that are delivered under cystoscopic guidance through the through the endoscopic approach. And basically what we do is we push the lobes of the prostate, the, both the lateral lobes, which are usually the ones causing the obstruction, we push them to the side with the special stitch, with a device that applies this special stitch uh, that uh, tenses them and pushes them to the capsule, basically creating an open channel. So what I usually tell my patients is that we are basically Moses opening the sea 
for the for the uh, people to pass. And that's how the urine passed because we're basically just opening and pushing the lobes to the side and, and creating a nice channel for urine to flow. So you're not removing any tissue. You're just moving it out of the way a little bit. Correct. In this procedure, there's no uh, resection. There's no ablation. There's no nucleation at all. This is just uh, uh, pushing the tissues aside. Uh, and with using special uh, stitches, we keep the tissues in place. These are stitches that stay there for life. Uh, they do not react with any uh, of the uh, body tissues. Uh, and basically, we just create a channel. That's why the procedure is very minimally invasive and usually does not take more than 10, 15 minutes. So these stitches or implants that are, are left behind, what, what are they made of? So they're made from nitinol and titanium. Uh, so they're inert. They do not react with the with the body. And they're basically within two or three weeks, uh, they are completely engulfed by, by the tissue. Um, and basically, uh, the person does not feel them anymore. Usually, there's some side effects of um, urinary irritation and some voiding symptoms in the first two to four weeks. But once these stitches are completely uh, surrounded and engulfed by the uh, tissue, the symptoms uh, dissipate completely. So would any man with an enlarged prostate be a candidate for this or are there size restrictions? So uh, right now, currently, the FDA has approved Urolift for prostate glands no more than 100, 100 grams, which is quite large, actually. Uh, but not more than that. Uh, we also always perform a test called cystoscopy in the clinic, where we basically uh, do this under local anesthesia. We go in with a, with a camera, endoscopic camera, and examine the prostate and the bladder and, and assess the anatomy, the size, and certain an anatomical parameters um, um, allow us to do this uh, procedure. Sometimes when there's a very large median lobe or some other anatomical factors that uh, we think are not uh, these patients would make these patients not good candidates for Eurolift, and we tell them that this is not a, a viable option. But if the anatomy allows it, then basically any person uh, with uh, a, a prostate gl gland of no more than 100 grams is a candidate for this procedure. What are the success rates like for this procedure? So as, as tissue is not being removed, uh, when they compared this to a, a TERP procedure, the classical, uh, the success rate was quite good, but it, it was not as good as a TERP procedure. Uh, but still, uh, uh, the uh, improvement in the stream, the improvement in quality of life uh, has been quite significant, and this has become a very uh, viable procedure. It's now in the guidelines of both uh, the AUA, the American guidelines, and the European guidelines as well. The retreatment rate for this procedure is about 13 percent uh, in five years, uh, which is quite good. We, of course, do not have the long-term follow-up for this procedure as we have for the classical gold standard TERP. Um, but uh, so far, the, the success rate is quite promising. And the side effects, erectile dysfunction, uh, urinary incontinence, those aren't the same with this procedure, right? Correct. So, so this is one of the advantages of this procedure is that the sexual uh, uh, side effects that we talked about before are basically, uh, they do not exist here. There's no retrograde ejaculation. There's no erectile dysfunction because no net tissue is being removed and nothing is being cut. There are some uh, urinary uh, side effects that I talked about before. Usually they're very uh, temporary and, and go away within two to four weeks. These are urgency. Uh, burning urination, sometimes slight incontinence, but these are usually temporary and they go away within a few weeks. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Hanan Goldberg and Dr. Scott Weiner. They're both urologists at Upstate who care for men with enlarged prostates. We've discussed a variety of treatment options, and now I'm going to ask uh, how each doctor helps their patient choose the best treatment for them. So, Dr. Weiner. Uh, what does a man need to consider? Sure. So some of the factors include the amount of bother that the patient's having. So for patients with a small amount of bother, they may choose medication um, or nothing. Um, behavioral modifications can be effective and, and so on. But for men considering surgery, um, it largely relies on a shared decision-making process. So the things that I look for as the urologist are, number one, the size and shape of the gland. So uh, like we talked about, the prostate is analogous to an orange with uh, the wedges of fruit representing the lobes of the prostate. 
So Dr. Goldberg mentioned the obstructing median lobe. So that's one thing we look for. If there is a median lobe, it can act like a ball valve obstructing the bladder and causing significant symptoms. Removing this ball valve uh, typically resolves symptoms uh, with high efficacy. Another option would be for a, a patient who's typically young with a very small gland. Uh, we talked about how the shape of the prostate can be a problem. So in this case, we may just contour the prostate by incising the top part of it, opening up and turning it into a funnel, and therefore preserving fertility uh, with, with less retrograde, retrograde ejaculation and limiting the amount of uh, uh, morbidity in terms of surgical time and, and bleeding risk and so on. Um, the HOLEP procedure uh, really doesn't have any specific restrictions. It can be done on any size gland. There's no upper or lower size limit. There's no shape uh, determinant. The only thing we really consider is if the patient uh, is concerned about retrograde ejaculation. Um, this procedure can also be done on patients who are on blood thinners. So um, we have that to consider as well. Um, so it, it sounds like you have to assess their anatomy and their medical history and to see which things might be suitable for them. Exactly. But let me ask you, Dr. Goldberg, if erectile dysfunction is the biggest fear, which of these procedures would be the safest way to go to preserve sexual function? So if, if retrograde ejaculation, uh, which is which is a main concern of a lot of men, especially the younger men, uh, even the medications, uh, um, um, that the alpha blockers can actually cause that as a side effect. So um, for these men, almost all of the procedures can can cause that aside from the Eurolift. Uh, that's the only one who can we can safely guarantee that would but that would not cause this, and the erectile dysfunction as well. So that is probably the the uh, the the treatment choice that I would go with. But again, this is not only um, decided by this. We have to, of course, as Dr. Weiner said. Look at the comorbidities of the patient, the ability to have anesthesia, the patient's preferences, the amount of bother, um, the ability to accept some side effects. Uh, we have to take all these into account. Which option is most likely to preserve urinary continence? So again, I would say that the Eurolift is probably the best one because there's no tissue that's being cut or evaporated or removed. Uh, we are simply uh, pushing the lobes to the sides. And that has been shown to have the lowest rates of, of incontinence when compared to other modalities. Now, the, we've talked about enlarged prostate, and the prostate keeps growing, right? If you if you don't do something to interrupt that, how important is it for a man to seek treatment early? Does it matter if he waits until the prostate gets even bigger, or is there an advantage to getting in sooner? Yeah, so uh, I'm a very big believer in screening. Uh, I, I'm also trained in, in oncology, in urologic oncology, so I'm a very believer in, uh, a great believer in prostate cancer screening. So I, I do think men should be tested above the age of 50, 55. They should see uh, a urologist. They should have a PSA blood test. And I think when once you assess them uh, for prostate cancer, for PSA, we also, of course, discuss about urinary symptoms. Uh, we have them fill out questionnaires. We talk to them. We ask them questions about their urinary function. So I think it's important to talk about this, to to put it on the table, as as they say, uh, and to and to see if there's any issues that need to be treated. Uh, and as Dr. Weiner said before, if there's no bother or very little bother, we might just watch this and do absolutely nothing. But I think it's always important to talk to this to talk about this with your physician. This overview has been very helpful. Thank you to my guests, urologists Dr. Scott Weiner and Dr. Hanan Goldberg. Both are assistant professors of urology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Kathy Kodra, an independent editor in Knoxville, Tennessee, is the author of a collection of poetry called Under the Adirondack Moon. She published that in 2017. Her love of nature pulses throughout the beautiful elegiac poem she sent us, Birdie Leaves This World. Bees arrive, 
and gently lift you up to a bed of honeycomb that hangs a wing shy of the nursing home cot before they bear you high and higher to weightless light where honey and jam, sheep and yarn and song encircle you in benediction, where you taste snow on your tongue again, where shocks of hay shine in the sun like thick strands of hair, and you soar above the world you knew to a pure state of satiation you hadn't believed in, hadn't seen in the tea leaves you brewed each morning, not noticing your soul's reflection. Astride the humming carpet, you turn back once, see your children crying for how they've disappointed you, lovers suffering for how they've done you wrong. You urge them all, go easy to your futures, never underestimate the forgiveness of a soul in flight. Below you, they stoop low in sorrow, cling to each other, seeking solace, not remembering to gaze skyward, where the bees bear you high and higher, where the new honeyed light encircles your hair like a halo, where snow falls past your smiling lips, and on you soar. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, how you can reduce your risk for stroke. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.